0: Please welcome Lawrence Rose. Well, thanks very much indeed to Patrick. Um, actually, the great thing about um, attending m- most of the festival and being the uh, almost the last speaker is that I have actually managed to take a few cues from um, some of the earlier uh, speakers, um, cues about what I might talk about and what I might... Try to avoid talking about. Um, so Patrick yesterday talked a little bit about um, as a musician, how uh, it's um, important for him to you know because of his, his great passion for that and the, the fact that that finds its way into some of his work, it's important to kind of be a bit careful about um, overdoing the music theory. Uh, and um, that was a cue that I that kind of resonated with me. and then there was something that Philip Hoare said yesterday about. About words and how words uh, just don't quite bridge that comprehension gap between people and the rest of the natural world, um, that also made my ears prick up, so I thought that those were two things that I might I might um, echo a little bit and then um, Horatio's wonderful talk at lunchtime about uh, about Finland you you'll, you'll also detect a, a, an echo there as well um, so uh, the long spring well um, it's, uh, it's the story of me, uh, as, as Patrick has said, sort of traveling uh, through Europe, exploring Europe, um, at the front edge of spring, as spring itself moves through Europe. And um, the point, actually, about about music um, provided me with a bit of an introduction for this, because um, uh, Patrick talked about uh, how it was quite important not to overdo the music theory. And I'm also a musician, a composer. <laughs> and. Um, when you write about the spring, you can't not write about birdsong and soundscapes and, and the, the sonic environment that spring provides you with. Um, uh, but as a composer, I've, I've had to kind of, I felt myself reining back some of, the, some of the theoretical stuff. So I thought I'd begin actually by sharing with you um, a message that I got from, from Cornwall a few weeks ago. Um, It's about the only Cornish flavor I've got to offer you, I'm afraid, Um, from a a musician who some of you may have heard of, Rolf Hind, who is a fantastic uh, pianist and composer. Um, And uh, uh, he and his husband were on holiday in in St. Ives. And they're quite interested in birds, but not particularly expert. And this is a typical message from Rolf. Uh, wanting me to identify a bird song, a stepwise chromatic descent with little rising octave grace notes before each note. And I, I don't know if you can quite see my reply at the bottom there, but that is the perfect description of A Willow Warbler, the song of A Willow Warbler. Um, and it's the song of a willow warbler that actually is the inspiration for The Long Spring. So Rolf unwittingly gave me an introduction to this presentation with a little Cornish twist as well, which was nice. I'll come on to the, um, the Philip Hall point about, about um, words a little later. But yeah, it was a willow warbler that started off the idea for me uh, of, um, of what became the book, The Long Spring. It's, it's a fairly ordinary bird in a way, fairly ordinary looking. It's quite a common bird, although nothing like as common as it used to be. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that happens every year. They arrive in early April and they start to sing. And for me, it's the bird that I always listen out for at that time of year, as the confirmation that spring has arrived. And, um, and in fact, when you're listening out for it, you don't hear it, but then suddenly you forget and you carry on digging the vegetable patch and then suddenly you can hear the first willow warbler of spring. So I did a few springs ago I did what I do every year at that time, I went looking for the owner of that voice, that beautiful song, um, and found it a couple of hundred yards away. It was in a willow tree, they're not always in willow trees, but this one happened to be. I just watched it for a moment, the first time I'd seen one since the previous summer. And it was amazing to watch how it was just navigating the tiny little spaces, the very complex three-dimensional world Of a willow tree which was itself moving around quite violently in in a strong breeze and this bird had no trouble at all anticipating exactly where the twig was going to be that it was going to land on next and exactly where the insect it was watching would be once the wind had whipped it away and um, i was just so impressed i've seen this hundreds of times before but there was a moment where suddenly i felt i'd connected for a moment with this bird and I kind of thought that I'm, I'm watching the most amazing little machine with the most amazing computer in its brain, um, and somehow that kind of led me along a bit of a thought journey that eventually um, made me decide I want to one spring I want to spend the spring traveling through Europe and tracking the arrival of spring through Europe, which is which is what um, what the Long Spring project. Is Um, and in fact, I ended up doing it the following spring, the spring of 2016. Following that track, you can't quite see the bottom of where I started. Starting off, um, actually, on the not quite sure how to, there we are, starting off um, on the North African side of the Mediterranean and making my way through six countries to the north coast of uh, of Norway. And um, what started out as an idea for a trip became a writing project, um, which is a new thing for me. I'm a new writer, a new author, uh, and the writing project became a book project. So if you've been to the artist tent here, you'll have seen Richard Allen's fantastic um, lino cuts. He provided uh, a kind of a, a frontispiece to each chapter, um, each of six chapters that uh, cover the six countries that I visited, starting with And they're all in the form of these kind of slightly old style pictorial maps. Um, So Spain was the first country through Spain, through France, into the UK, uh, from the UK into Sweden and then from Sweden crossing um, Horatio's Gulf of Bothnia, uh, ice free I have to say, so um, Horatio wasn't needed on that occasion to get us across, into Finland and um, finally through to um, the northern part of, of Norway. So I thought I'd start by reading the very first words of, um, of The Long Spring. February 1st, 2016, Theta, 35 degrees, 54 minutes north. Looking south from Monte del Renegado, I see all of Africa, like a map, unscrolled and stretching away into the glare. What my eyes see is bounded by the rift, Mount Boanan and its neighbours, beyond Tetuan, 30 miles to the south. In my mind, the view stretches past the limestone peaks to the burning sands of the Sahara, and beyond that to the thin sanctuary of the Sahel. Unseen, but more than imaginary, it is something sensed. The Congo basin sweats dark and fragrant before the great watershed at the threshold of the continent's south. Farther still, beyond the sea fog where scorched Namib and icy Atlantic tryst, I see beyond the Okavango swamplands and the southern savannas, all the way to the meadows of the Cape. The dusts and dews of Africa abound into the flesh of two billion birds, now beginning their journeys to the north. They may be European by breeding, but they are African in makeup. Every sinew and muscle that propels them here. All the fat gained as fuel for the journey and most of the feathers of their aero architecture were replenished in Africa. The ones that end their days in some English field or Finnish orpa will bring a morsel of the rainforest to the northern soils and their progeny will return it some future autumn. I wanted to start (coughs) symbolically with my feet on African soil but um, this was an exploration of, of Europe. So I turned my gaze to the north uh, across the Straits of Gibraltar and, and set uh, off across the strait into um, Europe. And um, something that Philip Hall said yesterday kind of resonated me when he, he, he talked about words, there being no words that bridge the gap between um, the experience of being human and, and, and the rest of the natural world. And um, it struck me that um, as a new writer, there was a decisive moment a few years ago, um, which turned it was like a kind of insignificant thing for me at one level, but actually turned to be, out to be life-changing. I bought um, a second notebook. I bought a black notebook to go with my blue notebook. My blue notebook, um, I've got a drawer full of them. They're not always blue, actually, but the cheap ones tend to be blue. Uh, my blue notebook is my bird watchers' notebook. All bird watchers have them, and I've got... 30 years' worth of birdwatchers' notebooks in my my drawers at home. Um, The black one was my writer's notebook, a new thing. And what I discovered was that the the discipline of going out and observing things that you've watched and observed all your life, but actually having the the discipline of finding precisely the words that, that capture that moment and it's more than just describing the thing that you see in front of you or describing the landscape. It's about capturing something that's intangible in that moment that only you feel but you want to then communicate. That for me was a whole new way of relating to the natural world and instantly and decisively it felt like a, a kind of second marriage to the natural world. You know, After 50 plus years of being a naturalist, suddenly I, I, I engaged with nature in a whole different way. Um, which was a a joyous and kind of exciting thing which hasn't kind of left me yet. And so when I crossed on a ferry across the Strait of Gibraltar, I was kind of practising, you know, just simply taking notes. And I was really lucky that one of the first birds that I saw as we crossed the Strait of Gibraltar was a fantastic subject, um, the the Balearic Shearwater. Um, As a conservationist, This is a really important species, it's one of the world's most threatened seabirds, it's certainly Europe's most threatened seabird. But also as a naturalist, as as an amateur ornithologist, just watching the beauty of this bird as it takes complete command of a very specific piece of air, the the few inches of air between the waves and the the wind. which is what the shearwater family does and the albatross family does so brilliantly. It was a wonderful thing to watch and therefore a wonderful thing to try to capture in words, whilst at the same time being an immensely important species for professionally for me as a, as a professional conservationist. Um, my first port of call in, in, in Europe was, was a beloved place, really, the Cotodoniana in southern Spain. If you know, the Cote you'll know exactly what my, I mean, but if you don't, it's just to the south of Seville. It's a vast wetland area of great national, international importance for wildlife and culturally very, very important. Um, and uh, it's a place that I've known really well in my working life and personally for a very, very long time. Swallows have arrived. There are a dozen or so, deeply, sleekly, sleeply, dipping and hawking scribing their blue signatures in the air. I follow one through binoculars for a while. His long tail streamers are the insignia of his sex and embellishes every figure. He strikes angles against the sun that glint blue silver. Each split second bank and stall on his flight path is a blaze on the trail of his invisible prey and also a signal of athletic prowess. As my swallow loses himself, Halfway across the lagoon, I lower my bins and take in the scene again, imagining the constantly changing perspectives from which so blithe a traveller must view it. His close focus and high definition imaging of minute quarry. His instinct for traffic control in shared airspace. The way he partitions the landscape for hunting or sleep. The knowledge he holds of what lies over the northern horizon and how to traverse the lands to the south. I cannot know how much more of Europe must pass beneath his wings before he is home? How many more times our paths might theoretically cross? He's likely to stay here a while, though. doniana is where spring arrives first in Europe. A swallow may leave Africa knowing that a mild and insect-rich welcome waits in these marismas. And You'll see that the, the thoughts I was having about that willow warbler the previous spring have sort of transferred themselves um, To the swallow. Um, I wanted to get into Spain on the 3rd of February, specifically (coughs) that date. It's San Blas Day or St. Blaise's Day, which in Spain um, is a kind of traditional first day of spring uh, with all sorts of rhymes and homilies and little kind of agrarian customs uh, all about what you should look for or what what you should do Um, on the 3rd of February, like planting your garlic on the 3rd of February and things like that. Um, And um, forgive the slightly loose translation, but I wanted to keep the the rhyme. This is my favorite of the San Blas little rhymes, which basically says that the 3rd of February is the date on which you should see your first white stalk of the year. Um, And if you don't see it, it's a good sign. It means that they've been held up on their journey back from Africa by snow in the mountains of southern Spain and snow in the mountains in winter means water in summer. So a good sign. Um, So on the 3rd of February, I decided I would see if indeed there were white storks. I went to a place I knew um, is actually the world's largest white stork colony, with about 450 pairs, all on little trees, wild olive trees and stone pine trees. And I thought, well, if they've arrived, that's where they'll be. And actually, I knew they'd be there because the 3rd of February is no longer, with climate change, is no longer a typical first date for for white storks. They will have arrived long before that, typically. And actually, um, there's been a more recent change so that adult white storks no longer migrate from Spain at all, or very few of them do. The young birds will migrate because they're drawn by instinct alone. But uh, once they become adults, experience tells them that with the changing climate with rubbish tips and things like that, which are delicious places to go and eat, you know, they can do very well in Spain. And so experience prevents the, the adults from, from making that, that very dangerous journey. Um, I can't remember if I said this, but uh, I didn't do this journey all in one go. I've, I've got a day job that I need to occasionally clock in with the RSPB uh, for um, uh, a few days a week. Uh, but in the times that I could kind of carve out some, some time for myself. I, I made a series of journeys that uh, added up to this long spring in 2016. So um, I went back to Spain and completed the, my trip through Spain and I finished the Spanish leg in the far northeast corner in Catalonia, another great wetland, the Aiguamols de Lempordar wetland. And there I discovered a poet, Maria Angels Anglada, um, who uh, died in 1999. Um, and who was really kind of at the forefront of the resurgence of Catalan literature when the Franco era came to an end. Now, I don't read Catalan terribly well, so what I did is I, I, I photographed 12, these 12 panels that were threaded all the way through the Moles National Park, which is a, a kind of literary nature trail, you could say, um, uh, because I could tell that there was something about birds in there, and I photographed These twelve panels of poems and and paragraphs from her novels, Um, and each evening over three nights, with the help of the internet, I painstakingly translated um, word by word these poems, and I found that she was somebody who, as well as being very much, you know, uh, in the in the in in the forefront of of uh, kind of asserting Catalan identity and her personal identity as a Catalan and building, rebuilding the Catalan literary heritage. Um, It was nature, the the birds and the landscapes and the wildlife of Catalonia that were always in the foreground of her work. It was as if um, nature was a way of expressing a a cultural link uh, to her land. And I found that a very exciting thing. And the next day, I was heading off away from Spain um, and over into, into France, and I found myself there following in the footsteps of another great artist who was inspired by nature. Um, Olivier Messiaen, who of course is a compo- was a composer famous for um, going out into the field and listening to birds and then writing down the bird songs using musical notation, his kind of rendition of birdsongs as he heard them as a musician. And he amassed an enormous collection, a hundred or so notebooks of musical notation, um, all inspired by birdsong. And he would collect from this material uh, and use this material to create fantastic pieces of music ranging from little piano pieces to to great orchestral and choral works. And he came to the, the Côte Vermeille, Um, which is the bit of the coast, the Languedoc coast, immediately over the border from Spain, 70 years before I did. And he was there looking for the blue rock thrush um, because he wanted to capture the beautiful song of the blue rock thrush. Uh, And as I was going there, I thought, well, I would see if I could follow in his footsteps. I actually had with me a score of Le Merle Bleu, the blue rock thrush, because in the score, he kind of gives quite a lot of detail about... The landscape that he saw and the sounds that he heard, um, uh, and you know, instructions to the pianist, because it's a piano work, instructions to the pianist that kind of give a lot of clues about the location. So I went to see if I could find the spot where he was listening to this lovely bird, the blue rock thrush, uh, and I think I found it. To my left, a small cove resonates with intimate, well-defined wave sounds, and its shallow, calm water reflects a turquoise blue. To my right, the wider bay between here and Cap Redri homogenizes the sounds into a generic wash and hiss and reflects a deep, charcoal-infused blue. In Le Mer Bleu, the blue rock thrush represents the sea in its different simultaneous moods. I hear one in the distance to my right. Again, the cliffs and the sea cause the song that reaches me to change constantly, varying the timbre, filtering the pitches. Only the phrasing is unaffected. Suddenly the bird appears from between two rock stumps to my right, flies over the finger of rock I'm sitting on and disappears down into the smaller cove on my left. On its short passage through my visual field, its colour changes with each wingbeat. According to the, the background and the angle it makes, with the weak sun. In the score, Messiaen mentions the colour shifts of both the sea and the bird. The one represents the other. Um, and the extraordinary thing about Messiaen that he has in, in a way with um, in common with uh, the poet Anglada is that they both had uh, they went through difficult times. Uh, Messiaen's first birdsong-inspired piece um, was actually written um, in. Uh, this prisoner of war camp on the Polish-German border, um, Stalag 8A, Prisoner of War Camp, Quartet for the End of Time, which um, I wonder if Patrick has actually played in it because there's a cello part in it, um, was written for Messiaen and three other prisoners to perform, um, which they did in front of 400 fellow uh, prisoners of war on the 15th of January 1941. And um, what Messiaen had done was heard songs like the Song of the Blackbird, and notated that and given the job of representing the blackbird to the clarinetist and um, to the violinist, he gave the job of representing the nightingale and brought those sounds together into what was actually a quite a kind of devotional piece um, uh, called the Quartet of, to the, for the End of Time. And despite the, the, the kind of circumstances in, in which it was created, um, it's become a staple of modern repertoire. So it's one of the most um, frequently played modern chamber music pieces now. But it originated in very difficult circumstances, inspired by birds. So I was kind of inspired by that. And it's a theme, actually, you know, the theme of um, artists finding inspiration in nature and finding um, that as a way of expressing their sense of self and their sense of cultural belonging perhaps, that that cropped up a few times in in, in my journeys. Um, So in Finland, for example, you heard Horatio speaking brilliantly about Kalevala, the the epic poem, 22,750 lines or something like that of poetry, compiled in the 1800s, but actually drawing on ancient oral tradition uh, of of poems and songs. well, I met a, 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 po- a, a painter when I was in Finland, Minna Piko. And Minna is uh, actually more, more known uh, in Finland as the kind of Chris Packham of, of Finland, um, the voice and face of Finnish uh, wildlife on television. But she's also a great painter, painting subjects often inspired by Kalevola, the, the the Finnish national epic poem. And she explained to me the role... Um, that birds play in in that poem, which, of course, in turn, was an inspiration a hundred years ago for the eventual independence of Finland itself. When the original poems were spoken, the earth was believed to be flat. At the edges of the earth was lintukoto, the home of the birds, a warm region in which birds lived during the winter. The Milky Way is Linnunrata, the path of the birds the route the birds took on their journeys to Lintukoto and back. In modern Finnish, Lintukoto means a safe haven, an imaginary happy, warm and peaceful paradise. In Kalevala, birds bring comfort and joy to people, explains Mina. They bring a person's soul to him at the moment of birth and take it away at the gates of death by the river of Tuonella. Tuonella, I know that name. Sibelius' Swan of Tuanella. It's a favourite of mine, a long, sinuous and otherworldly melody on the cor anglais that lasts for eight minutes with no theme repeated, like the waters of a slow river that can never turn back on itself. Um, for me, one bird that became almost like a personal totem during my journeys um, was the the common crane. This is a bird that I first came across, you can just see them there feeding under the oak trees in in central Spain, I first came across it uh, in in Extremadura. And um, I knew that these wintering cranes would be travelling the same kind of routes that I would be travelling to their breeding grounds in the far north. So I suspected that they would be um, perhaps a special feature of my journeys. And there is something special about cranes. You know, they are tall birds, they stand upright and they have a voice which for me is quite a human voice, quite a, f- a rough um, but human mezzo-soprano kind of register voice in a way. So there is no, um, no surprise perhaps that wherever there are cranes in the world there is some special relationship with people. Um, and they did indeed kind of follow me around a little bit. One of the places I, I, I um, visited during my journeys was the Fens of East Anglia which um, I've got a personal contact with because my father is from the Fens or was from the Fens and going back a few generations um, you know his family are are generations of of, of Fenland farm laborers and so I know this landscape really well and I know the 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 strange beauty that that it has with its flatness it's an entirely man-made landscape now having been drained of course in the in the 17th uh, century but the bit that is Almost natural is the ooze washes and the neen washes, two strips of land that could never be drained, Um, storage, really, for the drainage water itself. And the the cathedral at Ely kind of overlords this this view. Um, And I went there in April 2016 really to relive um, a teenage experience because um, by the time I was a teenager, I was regularly visiting these um, what I suppose you could call ancestral lands um, by myself having um, you know, become a bird watcher and finding other reasons to go back to, to, to where my, my grandparents and, and aunties and uncle lived. Um, and I wanted to relive a particular experience which was to spend a night under the stars, um, as it turned out it was under the full moon in fact, um, listening to the sounds of of the marsh during the night. The twilight's dimming coincides with the moon rising and brightening, causing a shift from red-tinted chromaticism to silvery monochrome. The light is now more directional from the east-risen moon rather than from the sky itself. The water can be heard, swishing when unseen ducks fly in and settle, slapping at the broad feet of mute swans and accompanying the windmill sail swipe of their wings. The long, pure piping of a redshank is a sound designed for distance, for telecommunication. Another replies, its call resolving into a wheeling yodel, the modest chirrup of teal, the lime-sharp stab of coots. And then the sound I have most been hoping to hear. I remember when I first heard it, close to here, when I was about 13 on a visit to my grandparents. I watched as a strange long-billed bird rose only to plummet back into the field with a sound like a balsa wood plane. I struggled to identify it from the descriptions in my Observer's Book of Birds. I couldn't reconcile the pictures of the most likely candidates with the descriptions of their calls. No sound ascribed to them came close to that flat airborne bleat. Finally, I realised that this no- bleating was no cry from within, but a rush of air through a snipe's tail feathers, a specially adapted wind instrument that rose from the marshes to deliver its vibrations across a wide open sky. On subsequent visits, when I was a little older and unaccompanied, I would walk alongside these fields after dark, listening to the night sounds, wild swans and red wings in winter, and in spring, a dive-bombing snipe leaving its unique feather music hanging in the clean air. Um, A sound that I wouldn't have heard as a teenager, um, but when I uh, kind of dug my feet into my sleeping bag a few years ago, um, I did hear, uh, just as night was falling, was the sound of the common crane, which um, is this kind of wonderful trumpeting sound across the, the, the airwaves. Um, And which has become a kind of symbol of conservation success because they hadn't nested in Britain for 400 years and they now nest in various places in East Anglia, including the Fens, also the Somerset Levels and even more recently in Yorkshire and and Scotland. So um, at a time when we need a lot of symbols of, of conservation good news, the crane really is that. I even, in a way, came across... Cranes in Scotland on the Scottish leg of my journeys. Um, I visited uh, this place, which is um, uh, Loch Kinord. This is the woodland on the edge of Loch Kinord. I'd gone there for a specific reason. It's one of the few places in Britain where a beautiful duck, the Goldeneye, breeds. And this beautiful duck has a beautiful display, which in spring really is, is at its best. And I wanted to go and see it, at Loch Kinord. But the snow was so heavy, this is sort of mid April, late April. The snow was so heavy that the birds were in no mood for courtship, so instead I just kind of explored this rather strange, primeval-looking, almost kind of Tolkien-esque um, uh, wood on the edge and um, found it you know, a, a mysterious place, a place redolent of, of you know, ancient times and, and Nordic kind of legends and so on came to mind. And when I was back home and I'd finished the journeys and I was starting to write things up, and I was writing up this bit, um, only then did I learn the name of this wood is boggingor, the little bog of the crane. So a name that might be a thousand-year-old name uh, indicating that cranes used to live there and maybe one day will again. I did eventually catch up with the lovely golden eye and its fantastic display, but I had to go to Sweden, which was my next country, uh, to see it and it was a wonderful sight, of course. So I arrived in Sweden on the west coast, the Kattegat coast, this is a, a lovely nature reserve called Getaren. And just as I was arriving, so the cranes were arriving from over uh, across the sea to the place that would eventually become their nesting area, or at least their nesting country. And by that time, I was so bonded to the crane that I felt a kind of, you know, a little sort of leap. Um, it was kind of like we'd arranged to meet, and I wasn't sure whether she was going to turn up, you know. Um, and um, and I even had this this fantasy that maybe I'd seen these cranes before in the in the steppes of Spain. Um, and it didn't matter whether I had or not. Just the idea that we were travelling together, occasionally meeting up, and occasionally doing our own thing was a a lovely sort of thought. Um, And they settled rather distant from where I was, in the farmland, um, uh, several hundred yards away, um, and started to do the other thing that makes cranes such a human kind of bird. They started to do a completely bonkers dance, um, uh, which cranes are famous for. Um, and It involves a lot of jumping around and flailing your wings around. And, um, uh, And as I was watching this, it occurred to me that this could almost be the the kind of like a a bonkers version of Morris dancing. I mean, okay, there is no such Morris dancing that isn't pretty mad, but like think of the maddest kind of Morris dance and you've got an idea of what crazy... So they've got this folky way of singing and they've got a folky way of dancing and a very human posture, and uh, you know, hence I think why everywhere in the world. I don't know, John, are there about 21 species of cranes in the world, something like that? And wherever there are cranes in the world, there is some kind of positive, affectionate relationship. Another bird that there's an affectionate relationship with in Scandinavia is the Hooper swan, because for us this is a winter visitor, but for Scandinavia it's a summer visitor, and it's probably the most visible and the most um, audible sign uh, of the arrival of spring. So there's a great deal of sort of folklore and affection associated with with the hooper swan. And um, I heard the the, the kind of massed chorus of hooper swans. Individually, their their call isn't very interesting. It's basically a kind of goose-like honking call. But but when you hear them together in a flock, it's actually a rather beautiful sound. And I visited uh, in northern Sweden, the Ume River Delta, near the city of Umeå, uh, the university town. Uh, in Northern Sweden, um, and I could hear throughout this delta this slightly mysterious murmuring, but a rather beautiful murmuring of of hooper swans and it was accompanied by other sounds, and I started to get a sense of there being almost a kind of orchestration to um, to this this sort of music of the of the Delta, um, beginning with the the whooper swans itself. the delta flock sends a choral rippling that reaches me against the river's flow. The crane's solid and irregular cries are like sonic islands in midstream, while the fairy song of the curlews is from the swirling realm of the air, like a sound originating from a distant source and passing overhead. The Sami concept of realms, of the living and the dead, the underworld, the middle earth and the spirit world, their denizens and tutelars, the shamans who journeyed between them, and the birds and animals that guided them, may owe something to soundscapes like this. If so, the white-tailed eagle is the bird with the voice to communicate across the divides, haunting all realms. By the time I got towards the end of my journeys, I was in uh, a kind of alien land. I'd never been north of the Arctic Circle before. I'd never seen the tundra landscape, the sparsely inhabited, most sparsely inhabited part of Europe. Um, and I came across a bird that appeared to have no relationship with human beings whatsoever. Um, a bird called the rednecked phalarope, which is a real Arctic bird. And um, as I I, I spotted a, a group of them in a distant tundra pool and I slowly made my way towards them because I, I didn't want to you know disturb them. Um, and as I got closer and closer, I was keeping an eye on them to see signs for whether they were maybe going to fly away so that I could n- know that I couldn't get any closer to them. And I got closer and closer and I, I was taking pictures each, each time I got a bit closer, just in case that was the last opportunity I would have to photograph this bird. Uh, and this picture was taken from a distance of 13 inches. Um, <laughs> And I was going to say it's a very trusting species, but actually I don't think it's trusting at all. I think it was simply utterly oblivious of any thought that I might be anything other than a a slightly curious new feature in the landscape, like an oddly shaped baby moose or something like that. Um, uh, It just simply didn't register any kind of contact with me whatsoever. And it just struck me that this is a bird that seems not to have evolved or had a reason to evolve any fear of human beings. What it has evolved is an amazing adaptation to Arctic life. This is a female um, red-necked phalarope. um, And both the male and the female are fairly brightly coloured, but the female is more brightly coloured, as this um, picture probably demonstrates. Um, This was at a distance of about 11 inches. Um, And uh, so... The problem of course with nesting in the Arctic is that you have this really short summer. You have as much daylight as you need, but you have it for just a very short period of time. And um, the traditional female role in the bird world of course is, you know, you lay the eggs, you sit on the eggs, you feed the young, you bring up the young, you look after them, and then you all go off together to to your wintering grounds. And that's a really limiting kind of. Um, role to play if you've got little time to bring up the kids. So what the phalaropes have decided is that they'll, they'll, re- they'll, they'll reverse the roles. They can't reverse the egg laying role so the female still lays the eggs but she's the brightly colored one because it's her job to attract as many men as possible. And she'll lay a clutch of eggs and then she'll find another bloke to lay another clutch of eggs with and do that as many times as she's got energy for Uh, in the course of this short Arctic summer, and it's the males that then sit on the eggs and bring up the young. So this limiting factor that over most of the rest of the world governs how many babies you can have, um, they seem to have kind of overcome that problem just by simply, you know, having stay-at-home husbands, uh, and lots of them. Uh, I finally kind of got to the most northerly point of my journeys. off the north, the north coast of Norway. Um, I was on a ship at this point, um, off Molvik Point, 70 degrees, 43 minutes north. And just as the ship was uh, beginning to kind of nose its way to the south, I suddenly realized that um, if I ran to the port side, I'd be 65 feet further north still. So I finally reached 70 degrees, 43 minutes, and, and 65 feet um, north. And that was kind of that was it, basically. That's the end of the journeys. But I kind of felt it, 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 it didn't feel like the end of what I wanted to say. Uh, it didn't feel like the end of the reason that I had embarked on these journeys. But I didn't quite know what to do next. I did have um, a, a day off after I'd reached that most northerly point um, and before I needed to fly home. So I packed away my black notebook and I just kept my blue notebook out and went to this place, um, which is called Jipmaluakta, which is northern Sami for Bay of Seals. Well, you knew that. Uh, It's near near the town of Alta in northwest Norway. Um, And it's quite a famous place, so I had a reason to go there, but um, I didn't think of it really in terms of of the writing. Um, It's quite famous for its geology. The rock that you can see in in the middle ground there is a hundred feet above sea level, and Horatio spoke about this, um, th- this isostatic rebound—the fact that most of the northern lands are bouncing um, upwards, uh, having been relieved of the pressure of the ice cap that was, uh, you know, that was weighing down on them. And this is a rock that's a hundred feet above sea level, but ten thousand years ago, it was at sea level, um, pushed down by the Arctic ice cap, the Ice Age ice cap, and it's believed that that. At the time that this rock was at sea level, people didn't inhabit this area. But you can walk downhill towards the shore and you pass other rocks that have emerged from the sea more recently, 6,000 years ago, for example. And there you see signs that people by then had arrived at these shores. Little pictures chiselled into the rocks of animals. And that's what I wanted to go and see, reindeers and things like that. They're not difficult, they're not easy to see, But the local museum has coloured in, with a harmless red pigment, a lot of the the, the pictogram, the um, uh, petroglyphs, uh, that are carved into these rocks. And they show a relationship between people and bears and and, uh, reindeer and moose and other animals that go back um, between 3,500 and 6,000 years. And as you go downhill, it's like you're going forward in time because you're... You're coming up with artistic styles that have changed in those three and a half thousand years. Slightly different subject matter, um, but all chronicling a relationship between people and wildlife uh, stretching over those thousands of years. And when I saw this image, that really stopped me in my tracks. Because I looked at this and I thought, this has to be a man holding with his hand around the neck of a great orc. And extinct species um, and, I, and I, I had all the guidebooks with me I looked through the guidebooks there was no mention of great orcs and it suddenly occurred to me that this is possibly the the earliest and maybe the only uh, document of a relationship between human beings and a species that is now extinct a species that we can no longer have any relationship with. I stopped trying to understand the purpose and meaning of the art on the rocks. I need to untangle the thoughts. There is a black guillemot in the bay, the most beautiful of the extant orcs. I see it 60 feet below my position beside the orc rock. The black of its plumage is a soft velvet black with a suggestion of deep red-brown, the colour of black hair in summer. It has a broad white wing band. A red spark flashes from its legs when it dives. Did its ancestors once dive with Pinguinus impennis. Did Pinguinus impennis live here, the very bird brought home by the hunter whose portrait is beside me? I could run my fingertips along the groove of the great auk's neck, but resist the temptation. Just seeing the thousands of quartzite bites in the image and imagining a Stone Age finger brushing the chippings away to nourish the soil at the base of the rock, to create the carpet of dwarf cornel flowers at my feet, is to connect to the ghost bird. Um, and uh, this forms part of a kind of final chapter, and this is Richard's sort of artist's impression of what the times those times might have looked like. Um, so I'd I'd written about the Great Orc, um, but I still didn't feel that I'd I'd written an ending. Um, and then by by the June of 2016, and I was back home and I was I was getting on with the writing, something happened that really meant that the final 20 pages pretty well wrote themselves um, in a a kind of stream of consciousness that came to me on a train journey. June 24th, London. I awake in a different country. I went to bed at 2.30 this morning when the early results of the EU referendum suggested vote leave might win, but at a time when Remain had nudged in front. At 6.30 a.m., I catch a train to London for a meeting. My laptop remains in my bag as I allow the gentle undulations of South Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire to provide a familiar backdrop to my unfamiliar thoughts. A journey of any kind, and a rail journey in particular, invites thoughts about connectivity. This spring, I've crossed 34 degrees and 49 minutes of latitude, most of the distance covered by train and bus, watching strips of landscape as it evolves, like a self-narrating visual poem. By May, as I was approaching the Arctic, I began to think of the journeys as verses in that poem, stimulated by talk of Kalevala and earlier of Mabinogion. I've been struck by the power of epic poetry to cement an idea of a land, a people, a tongue, defined by all the things that borders cannot contain and none of the things for which borders have a purpose. And that's the kind of starting point for a bit of a rant about um, Brexit and about the the utterly hopeless politicians that have presided over decades of loss uh, of nature and decades of degradation of Europe, of of Europe's natural environment. And I didn't write The Long Spring as a long, slow introduction to a short rant about Brexit, but it sometimes does read a little bit like that. I I wrote The Long Spring because I'm a conservationist and in 35 years of working for a conservation organisation, the RSPB, uh, only relatively recently have I really understood that conservation is actually mainly about people and mainly about connections between people and their natural environment, between people and place, between places connected to each other by the migrations of birds. So I spent that spring examining the the joints between nature, culture uh, and conservation uh, and the vital sense of place that cements them together uh, and that crumbles when they crumble. The the, the book, close to the end of the book, I conclude, um, public policy lacks any sense of place and has helped fuel people's detachment from place. It gives built-in advantage to the would-be destroyers of places... They've never walked in, listened to, been rained on in, written poems about. Thank you.